earlier in the podcast, Sean Kane agreed to allow me to interview him for the podcast. First off, it's a very upsetting interview. His phone rings about every five seconds. He says almost every other word. He sounds like an attorney, which he is for the archdiocese. But he said some things that was very surprising. And I think that when you listen, you'll be upset and you'll also be surprised. One of the things that he said to me when I asked him if they monitored where the abusing priests, who, mind you, are credibly accused of abuse, if he monitors where they go to live, because we are well aware of some abuser priests who have been credibly accused. And I will also add that he informed me that to be credibly accused, their archbishop would be the one that is the deciding person. He is the judge on if the abuse allegations is enough to consider him the priest credibly accused. But nonetheless, Sean informed me that they do not monitor where they go to live. So basically, he said, if they are credibly accused, they are removed from the church. So they're not allowed to say mass, be a priest in schools, whatever. However, they, the church still does pay them, and they can go live out in these retirement facilities. Now, I don't know if, um, if you've ever been to a retirement facility. I have. I have family members who are in them. And I've actually been to one where I came across a priest. And at the time, I remember thinking, oh, that's so good that there's a priest at this place. Like, that, that's going to be so nice for anyone who wants to come in contact with a holy person. That's really nice to have. But then when he told me that, I immediately flashed back to that moment when I was 12 and I met that priest at that retirement facility in Indiana, mind you. And I thought he could have been an abuser priest. I wouldn't have known that as a child and even as an adult. That wouldn't have been shared because ultimately the system that they have created allows pedophile priests to live outside of the law. So there's no system that monitors where they're being held and where they're living. So I asked Sean, he told me that he was a father, how he felt about that. And he said that he felt that the Catholic Church priest abusing children is comparable to Home Depot employees abusing children. And one of the things that I've learned working on this case specifically is that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, Catholics are taught the only way to heaven is through the church. So in that aspect, I don't see how he could have compared Catholic priests abusing children to Home Depot employees abusing children. What are your thoughts on that, Tom? It seems clear to me at this point, after 20 years of working on this story, the real reason for celibacy and for denying the priests of the Roman Catholic Church any outlet for their sexual energy has nothing whatsoever to do with morality or whether or not sex is sinful and it's terrible to break the sixth commandment or whatever, and isn't it a shame? It has to do with property. Think it through, please, with me for a moment. And again, I'm not the first to say this, but if you demand that your priest can never marry, all inheritance goes back to the church. And by doing this for centuries, wives didn't get the house and the car and the savings account and all the rest that most of us struggle for in our lives. It all went back to Rome. And so celibacy has become, over centuries, 
That's why they're the most powerful, wealthy organization on the planet. Celibacy is a corporate tool that allows them to make sure that they keep all of the money. And in order to have that money, they knowingly have subjected thousands and over centuries, probably millions of innocent children to incredible torture. Again, I will use my word, despicable. And if you look at all of that as part of one long story, you can see what I was stunned to learn. When I looked at some, I've interviewed many, as you have, I've interviewed many victims of abuse in the Catholic Church over the last 20 years. Again, when I look at their, some of them will show me their letters and contracts and so on. It's been determined that they were credibly abused and that they have suffered endlessly. The ones, that is, who aren't dead from suicide, drug abuse, alcohol, and broken marriages and lives of absolute suffering. I have talked to women living alone in single rooms, women with their children living in, pardon me, I get emotional, living in shelters. I talked to one of these victims. She's got three kids and she's living in a damn shelter for the homeless and begging for dollars to try to get food for them. These are people who were immeasurably harmed. For what? For the sake of the church's immense worldwide wealthy empire? I'm sorry if that sounds cynical. I've gone to great pains to show how much admiration and respect and affection, I feel, for the wonderful priests and nuns who go in every day and deal with terrific problems with their flock and help everybody get through the storm. But for an organization to operate in this manner, I think it's only five or six centuries ago that they came up with this odd decision that their priests must now be celibate. Before that, I don't think that was the case. It looks like the most cold-blooded and the cruelest kind of business manipulation that I can think of. And so I say to you, I don't want to get judgmental or horrible, but I'm, and I promise you, Shane, this is the only time I will quote the Bible in this interview. But I will remember, a, Ray, I'm a writer, you know that. I really value and respect language. And I forget what, it, what the context was, but Jesus himself once said, if you do this, quote, I will vomit you from my mouth. I repeat, I will vomit you from my mouth. That's how I feel about that corporate decision-making. And when I looked at the papers of some of these victims, I was startled at first and soon grew used to it. You know what it actually says on the settlement contract that these women and some men put out? It says, hereby hear ye unto these precincts at this hour, blah, 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 in the circuit court of Baltimore, blah, blah, blah. Joe Smith, the or Joanne Smith, the victim of abuse, uh, is entitled to a settlement to be offered to her by, quote, the Corporation of the Catholic Church. Jesus was supposed to be the incarnation of human love and respect for other people and caring about them, and helping them, and loving your neighbor. This is the incorporation, not the incarnation. And the incorporation, I tell you now, and you'll let me yell for a minute, 
I vomit from my mouth. And so I hope, again, I have been responsive. I never really thought about the property thing. That makes perfect sense because I do know that for many hundreds of years, I want to say that the popes were married, actually. And I knew that because of a old documentary I watched many years ago, actually, (laughs) way before I knew anything about this case, that the popes used to be married. That uh, it, It makes perfect sense. I've heard over and over again working this case that people call the Catholic Church the machine or the corporation the business. And it seems like that process of not allowing priests to marry in order to obtain their property after they die, it just feeds the beast, feeds the machine. So that all makes sense. I'm glad that you pointed that out. Thank you, Shane. Absolutely. I want to make clear here, calmly as I'm capable of, that indeed, I'm not giving you speculation. I have read through these legal agreements with survivors of this abuse, and they routinely say the agreement is between the victim and the corporation of the Catholic Church. In fact, they enjoy all of the protection and all of the political power and the rest, it goes with being a corporation. I've always found it interesting in the extreme, as a student of language, the difference between incarnation and incorporation. A corporation is designed in large part to make sure legally that you are not held accountable personally and so on. The corporation does. And it makes perfect sense. If what we're talking about is accurate, why wouldn't you want to have a team of attorneys, and they do, a team of private detectives, and they do, and all of the other machinery employed by corporations from General Motors up to Dow Chemical, which they heavily invested in during the war, Vietnam War, why would you not want to be incorporated? They are actually a corporation not a church. And the indescribably vulgar and offensive reality that they pay no taxes, I bet some of the lawyers at General Motors or Dow Chemical would dearly love to learn that they won't have to pay taxes this year. The church has never paid them because they are holy people, right? They are men wearing skirts terrifying little children into living lives of penitential guilt and obligation to them so that when they pass that basket around in church, everybody puts as much dollars as they can spare in there in order to be sure they're going to heaven. That's the corporation side. And again, I'll just stop by saying the spiritual side, the saints and the martyrs, and the wonderful priests and nuns we have today who do such terrific things for other people out of love, they have my wholehearted respect, affection, and goodwill. But the corporation, I'm not going to repeat what I said about vomit. I'll let that stand. (laughs) So that's my feeling as to how all of this really happened. They had unchecked corporate and unchecked political power back in the day, and they still do in many areas. 
in many ways. And that power is what allowed them to violate the rule of law and protect criminals within their own establishment from the prosecution that should have rightly occurred. But the good news, I don't get down. I'm, believe it or not, I write comic novels these days, and I laugh, and I hug my grandkids, and I'm grateful for the good things my Catholic education gave me. I have no ill wishes toward any individual in all of this. I'm not on a crusade or a kick. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. But I'm just a reporter, just another in the endless stream of reporters out there who are saying the law is the law and you don't get to avoid the law because you belong to a powerful corporation. So, Tom, do you think Kathy went to the police for the archdiocese about the abuse. What we do know is that a handful of the women who were abused say that they went to Sister Kathy independently without the others knowing and told her that they were being abused, that this was happening. So in your opinion, being the wise person you are and knowledgeable about the case for so many years, do you think Kathy went to the police or the archdiocese? She was close to it, obviously. I've interviewed some of the same people that you have. There's no doubt that she was aware of what was going on. We know factually, tell me if you agree from your research, we know that Father Maskell appeared at Sister Kathy's apartment the night before she vanished. And two witnesses who were there reported. This witness reported that Maskell and Magnus came into Kathy's apartment on their own. Maskell appeared to be angry, while Magnus appeared confused. At that time, 
the witness and her boyfriend were told they should leave. The following day at Keo, the same day Kathy was taken, this witness explains that Maskell approached her and said, if you tell anyone, I will kill your boyfriend and your family. We know that those allegations are real and believable. And now let's just ask ourselves a key question. What's the likelihood that those two events occur on the same day that the nun vanishes? What's the chance that is merely a coincidence? Come on. Coincidence happens now and then. We all know that. Even an Irish person like me is smart enough to understand that the odds on that merely being a chance moments are extremely low and that night at seven o'clock approximately in the evening he vanishes please got to be a connection there and so it's on that basis if i'm answering your question that i'm firmly convinced that she was warning maskell that if you keep up this behavior several girls have come to me and it's terrible and i can't live with it and if it continues, I'm going to report you. Had she already begun to do that? Indeed, had she gone to somebody at the police station who had then warned the cops who were involved also in the abuse? And that triggered the defining moment. We have to discipline her, et cetera, et cetera. I can't say. I don't factually know. I'm not sure it's that important because if we know that Maskell was threatening her and these other kids, and we now know, not from Nugent, but from WJZ-TV, easily, the broadcast is easily obtainable by your listeners. If we know from a station like WJZ-TV that police were involved in the abuse frequently, then I say to you, a reasonable person must conclude that whether she'd already gone to the cops and said something or whether she simply told Maskell that she intended to do, the fact is the next day she apparently died. And that's enough for me to conclude, if I was on a grand jury, this is reasonable cause to find out more and see if it's actionable that he is involved in her death. I agree with you completely. If we dis, we would have to discount a lot of information, include every, including everything that you just mentioned. And I want to include in that what Kathy's sister says, that when and Kathy's dad addressed Kathy leaving Keo and teaching at a public school and how dangerous that could be. She mentioned that it was more dangerous for her to be at Keo than a public school. Now, why would she be using that language? Also, you mentioned how Father Maskell and Magnus rushed into Kathy's apartment, very upset. And in my mind, I have to think through this. Why are two people that work at the school that she used to teach at no longer taught at. At the time when Maskell and Magnus rushed into her apartment, she was not teaching at the school that they were at. So why would they be doing that if it was not for this very reason? And also, throughout this entire process, I learned more and more about the type of person that Maskell seems to have been through not only the survivors who can, tell, who can talk about their experiences with him, but also some of his friends who have spoken about their interactions with Maskell. And it seems to me that he was such a control freak and was always used to 
getting his way, especially when it came to women. But in my mind, I think to myself, could he have done this? Could he have been pushed over the edge to the point where he wants Kathy murdered? And I can't help but to believe that if I put myself into his mindset with everything that we know about, everything that we've been told, and also the side of his faith that he's working in, the Catholic Church. But it seems to me that this was the one time that a woman told him no. And I think that is what could have sealed Kathy's fate. Because from what I've learned about Kathy, from people like Gemma and other students who knew her well, it seemed like she was a very stand-up person. And if these students went to her, as I believe that they did, I believe in them, and they tell her about the abuse, I believe she seemed to have been the person who would have stopped at nothing to ensure that it would stop. And that would also fall fall into the lines, and it would make all of these different puzzle pieces fit. So that's how it all fits in my mind. I think we have to remember, too, that it was the history of that era, especially in Irish Catholicism, which, by chance, I happen to know something about. I can remember how, on Saturday afternoons, my mother would say, it's four o'clock, Tommy. You better get your little jacket and tie on because confession starts in half an hour. Yes, Mom. And you would go to the dark confessional and kneel on your side in the confessional box, as we called it, and this door would slide open and you weren't allowed to leave. You can only see the vague outline of the priest's face on the other side and you would then hear the voice How long has it been since your last confession? I was here last week, Father. What sins have you committed since that confession? Uh, I yelled at my brother. I I called him a little shit. That's wrong, don't you? You're supposed to love your little brother. What else did you do? I'll spare you the rest. I'm saying our terror as seven-year-old kids was these guys, the priests, controlled your hopeful chance to get into heaven. And if you didn't get their sacramental approval, you faced the very real possibility of eternity of incredible pain. I was taught that the devils will take you and they will take burning slabs of metal. They will burn you with metal against your skin and you will scream and beg for mercy. But there will be no mercy you're in hell. And I was told after the first hundred thousand years, as you grovel and cry and beg and desperately try to get relief from your agonizing suffering, that the devils will laugh and they will yell, you've only been here a hundred thousand years. This isn't two minutes. We're doing this forever. And so you would have nightmares and you would struggle. And once you had been branded with that, And most of the Catholics I know, the brave ones I know, who've dared to stand up and fight back, live the Irish Catholics in that world, which, by the way, was the world of Keogh, essentially. Few exceptions, but that was Keogh. And it was certainly the world of Maskell, who was as Irish as they come. And it was in that world that the priest had absolute power of eternity and absolute 
control of eternal agonizing pain that terrified all of us. That is not, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. I grew up with that. It took me many years of psychoanalysis, nightmares, endless struggle before I began to see that I could go beyond that early upbringing and perhaps begin to take a saner, more rational view. But back in the day, when all of this was happening in the late 60s and early 70s at Keo, guys like Maskell were fully in charge. You've heard the saying, absolute power breeds absolute corruption. You know that phrase in politics? They had absolute power. It is now time, and you'll permit me one moment of rah-rah cheerleading. It is time to break their hold. It is time to destroy the corporation. Not the spiritual life of the church, let me underline that, and not the wonderful work that the good people in the church do, but the hold of the corporation must be broken. We have lived with tyranny in this arena, this world, from as far back as I remember, and I am proud, I hope, in a small, undemonstrative way, to have done a tiny part in breaking that hole. So that's my feeling as to why, indeed, he would be able to gather his forces. And what's sad to know is he may have left Theo and gone to Western Public High School to teach because she could no longer endure watching what was being done to her students, didn't feel sure right then about whether she could stop it, looked for a way to find some sane place to live and work, and she went on and did that. We'll never know, but it seems like a logical explanation to me. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.